come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. It's always a, a joy to welcome people back to our church who grew up here. And uh, Wes Brown is uh, one of those people. We are happy to welcome Wes and his wife Dana uh, back to Houghton and particularly to the Houghton Church. Uh, they have uh, been serving in Kenya and uh, doing a variety of things. Uh, he's going to be sharing with us just a moment, and then he and Dana are speaking in the Kaleidoscope Sunday School class. So I'm going to give him an opportunity to share a little bit about their work uh, with SIM. Thank you. Oh, good morning. 
It is wonderful to be here. Um, my name is Wesley Brown. My wife Dana is actually over in the Sunday school class, but she's wearing a beautiful blue shirt, and she has long, beautiful, dark hair, so if you see her, say hello. Um, as, as Pastor Odin mentioned, I grew up here in Houghton, and uh, my wife and I actually met here at Houghton College, so Houghton is a very special place for us. We are so happy and thankful to be able to come back. Uh, for the last six years, my wife and I have been serving as full-time missionaries with SIM in Kenya. Uh, next slide, please. Kenya is located, for those of you that don't know, in East Africa. It's just north of Tanzania, where Houghton has their program, um, and south of Somalia, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. And so if you've perhaps heard of some of those countries, you may recognize that that part of the world is not very stable these days, especially Somalia and South Sudan. But Kenya is a relatively stable country in a relatively unstable part of the world. We live in the capital city of Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya, but also kind of the economic capital for the whole region. And that's where we've been for these last six years. Next, please. Um, before going to Kenya in 2012, my wife had just finished up her PhD here in the U.S. in cognitive science. And arriving in Kenya, she got connected with SIM's education branch and got involved with the first doctoral program in clinical psychology in all of East Africa. Um, and this is a big deal because before that point, if you wanted to be able to get a higher level degree in psychology, you would have to go to South Africa or Europe or the U.S. And for most Kenyans, that just wasn't an option. They didn't have the economic ability or the time to be able to do that. But now they can do this kind of training in their own country. And so she is now part of, this is actually a picture of the first cohort of students, of doctoral students in that program. Next slide, please. And part of the reason this is so critical is this statistic from the WHO, which says that by 2030, depression will be the leading global disease. And that is not the leading mental disease. That is just disease of any kind. And in Kenya, they only spend roughly 2% of their budget on um, and, uh, medical, um, uh, their, their medical department on, on mental health. And so they have a critical need for this kind of of um, training and these kind of people in their country. And so Dana is really happy to be a part of that. And also her background in, in cognitive science allows her to have started up a research center and to be able to share her passion with research and, um, and being able to share that with the students that she's working with. And it's been a, a wonderful opportunity for her. Next slide, please. My background is in IT. And so that is actually what I am doing in Kenya. I've been um, doing that since I graduated from Houghton here. And that's what I do as on a project called Banda Health. And Banda Health is an IT project designing software to help support hospitals, Christian hospitals in the developing world. Um, Christian hospitals in, um, in the developing world tend to be at the forefront of evangelistic opportunities because for many people, they don't have the option or the interest of going into a church. And, but they will go to a Christian health institution. And while they're there having their body healed, they can hear about the love of Christ through the doctors and nurses and staff members who are who their ministry, their mission is to be able to share Christ uh, through the, the medicine that they practice. And so we are trying to support these institutions by being able to help them remain sustainable, but also freeing them up from the administrative responsibilities that they would have to do. Next slide, please. Where you, When you see a room like this, this is a typical file room. And so we are trying to, to, to move all of these things into electronic records, which seems like a very simple thing. That's what you assume would be the case, but for many places it's not. And so we're working with these institutions to help them to be able to deal with the fact that so many patients are coming in because they provide such excellent care. Next slide, please. Uh, over the last five years that the, our software has been in use, it's now uh, being used at more than 20 sites in more than seven countries around the world. We don't actually know all the different countries because we give it away for free. We put it up on the internet so that anybody anywhere in the world can take it and use it and not have to pay license fees or any cost to us. Because we feel like this kind of software is so important that we don't want it to be hidden behind license fees and, and those kind of things. So it's been a great success. We've gotten great response. I get emails from all over the world every week of people using the software and asking us questions, which is kind of fun to get emails from Bangladesh and Niger and Kenya and all these different places. So that's a lot of fun. Next slide, please. One of the questions we often get is how people can get involved. And there's a number of different ways. Um, we have a sign-up sheet in the back. There's some cards that has some information about who Dana and I are, what our backgrounds are. Um, we also have a newsletter that comes up periodically, so you can sign up for that. We are uh, actually here in the U.S. on a home assignment or a furlough, and we're looking to get back to Kenya in the next month or two. 
And to be able to do that, we do have a little bit of financial support left to raise. So if you're interested in supporting us in that way, we would love to talk with you. Um, and we also really need prayer support. We, we survive in Kenya based on our prayer team that is behind us. Next slide, please. And I also want to give a thank you to the Houghton Wesleyan Church congregation for the prayer and financial support that you have shown to us over the last six years that we have been in Kenya. We could not be doing what we are doing there without both, without the prayer and financial peace, people coming together behind us. And it's a great encouragement to, to, to me and to, to my wife as well to know that the home church, the, the place where I was brought up and where I started my journey with Christ is behind me uh, and supporting us in, in the work that we are doing. So thank you so much, and I look forward to being able to connect with as many of you as possible while we are here over the next few days. Thank you. Born for our salvation. 
Please be seated. As we enter into this uh, time of prayer, I'm sure that all of us bring with us burdens and concerns, as well as joys and expressions of gratitude about life. Uh, There are some folks in our community, particularly who are grieving. I want to remember uh, Jerry Alderman's family had a service for her yesterday. And uh, uh, Hudson Hess, who had been a part of this community for a number of years, died on Friday night. And uh, his funeral service will be Saturday at 11 o'clock here at the church. We want to remember these uh, families and friends as well as others in our prayers this morning. Please pray with me. Father, it is an awesome thing to think about the gift of Jesus Christ. To think that the power and the glory is ours Because of Christ, as we give power and glory and praise and adoration to him. And we live in his grace and power and mercy. We've gathered here today because of who Jesus is. And we come to worship. To worship with our mouths and our minds, our bodies, our spirits. Everything about our being. Father, as we come today, we know that there are many burdens and concerns that we bring with us. We pray today, Father, for for families and people who are grieving. We pray for the Hesses and for the Aldermans and others who are on our minds. And pray that your comforting presence would be with them. We pray for all who are struggling with illness and pain and and the difficulties that come to us in this world, in this fallen, broken world. We ask that you would bring your healing grace. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church and the ways that we serve one another. We thank you for the ministries of churches around us. We pray for the Short Track United Methodist Church and Pastor Wickard. We ask that your, your power and your spirit would be upon them as they worship today and as they serve you throughout the week. Father, we pray for our nation and our world. We think of people who continue to deal with, uh, with disasters and tragedies that often are just so removed from us. We pray for refugees and the places where they are struggling and and worried and concerned about just everyday necessities that we probably take for granted. We pray for places of war and violence. We think especially of Syria today. It's hard for us to comprehend the, the destruction and the devastation. We pray, Father, that you would bring peace and reconciliation and bring an end to, to the, the violence and the warring between peoples that so often catch innocent people in the middle. We pray for your church around the world. Thank you for the ministry that Wes and Dana have. May they continue to know your grace upon them as they, as they spend the next few months preparing to go back to Kenya. And we ask that you would bless their work there, their interactions, the teaching they do, and the services they provide. And through all of that, may, may people come to see you for who you are and open their hearts to you. And Father, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Indonesia, many places of this great country that you love, where... Followers of Jesus are persecuted and discriminated against and harassed because people just don't understand who you are. So we pray, Father, that you would give to to believers in Indonesia and to children of believers who are attempting to live their life and to learn and to go to school and, and just be families. And we pray, Father, that you will give them grace to share the love of Christ in very difficult circumstances. Lord, thank you for all that you are doing for us and in this world. 
Thank you for the privilege of gathering here to worship you. Be glorified in our worship as we continue to praise you and give glory to Jesus Christ. May our minds be open and ready to hear you as we give worship to you. We ask this through the grace of Jesus. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Just want to remind you this morning that we are conducting the uh, pastoral vote. The elders uh, unanimously have recommended to the church to extend uh, an extended call to Pastor Wes uh, as our pastor, and I'm just reminding you that ballots are available and voting is taking place in the lower lobby right inside the front doors of the church. So following the service, uh, if you haven't already voted, uh, please make your way down into the foyer uh, to do so. Thank you. It's a joy to uh, join together in worship each Sunday. We're glad to see you here today. And let me invite you to take just a couple moments and uh, share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. So what comes to mind when you think about heaven? What kind of vision comes to your mind when you hear the word heaven? I've talked to enough people, I've read enough things to know that our mindset about heaven is kind of all over the map. People have all kinds of different views about it. There are views about heaven that you know, make us think of harps and angels and clouds. There are views of heaven that are much more, um, much more tangible, much more material. Over the past 10 years or so, I think my vision of heaven has changed dramatically. And I've come to the place of, of recognizing that when we talk about heaven, what we're really talking about is at the end of Revelation, and what you see in some of the prophets, is a new he- the new heaven and new earth. This, this earth that God has created and loves and says when he creates it, it is good, it's very good. 
that it's not going to just be destroyed and we're going to exist in eternity as sort of, you know, ethereal beings, but God is going to restore this earth. He's going to make it better than it ever was. And we get the privilege of existing here on this earth, on this restored earth, as restored people for all of eternity. Now, not everyone agrees with that perspective, but I think that's what Scripture is telling us. And I think in that, in that eternal perspective, we will have relationships and we will do work and we will learn, particularly learn about God, because I don't think we ever get to the end. We will never get to the end of understanding God. Because if we do, we are God. And I think there's great joy in learning. You know, if, if you're like me, when you, when you take the time to, to work through something and figure out something you've never known before, and all of a sudden the light goes on, that's one of the greatest moments of life. Or you're attempting a task and you're working at it and you get it. That's one of the greatest moments we experience. And I think heaven is all about these phenomenal moments when we begin to understand things and we accomplish things in the power of God that we never understood or accomplished before. But however we view eternity, I am convinced of this. That at the very center of what heaven means, at the very center of what eternity means, at the very center of what the new heaven and the new earth means, at the core of that is the understanding, the truth, that Jesus Christ is the king. And that's a non-negotiable. Jesus Christ is the king. When you read the book of Philippians, and we come to that second chapter, and Paul writes about, about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. We talk about that often as the sacrifice that Jesus makes. What we don't often do is move on to the next three verses that say, therefore, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I was reading something recently, and they were talking about that very passage, and they're saying in the, in, the, in the earlier part of it where it says Jesus was, being, was very God. Jesus is God. And you think, how much, how much higher place can you get? There is something about what Paul writes that almost gives you the sense that Jesus is like the super God, exalted God. That's the place of Jesus throughout all of eternity. He is the king. And what we read in the book of Revelation, in this first chapter, under, underlies that whole idea that Jesus is, in the words of Handel, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Everything is about him. We sang a few moments ago, you know, what a beautiful name, what a powerful name. And we declared, you have no rival, you have no equal. Heavens are roaring the glory of God in Christ. And when we read Colossians chapter 3, and, and Paul writes and says that we are to think on heavenly things instead of earthly things, that we are to set our sights on the realities of heaven, one of the dynamics of that is that we not just think about Jesus as the exalted king to whom all of heaven is going to give allegiance. But we begin to recognize that if we are a Christian, that's our mindset now too. 
That what it means to be a Christian, the very definition of being a Christian, is living our lives in allegiance to Jesus. And if heaven is about everyone who is there, as Lewis says in The Great Divorce, only once what heaven offers, which is that Jesus is the king and everything about heaven is everything that God desires. Everything, the priorities of heaven are God's priorities. The thoughts of heaven are God's thoughts. Everything about heaven is God's kingdom come as he designed it, wants it, and desires it. If that is what that day will be, then doesn't it make sense that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, then that's what you want even now. And the journey that we have in this world now is to continue to to give ourselves in allegiance to Jesus. We're going to give ourselves allegiance to something, right? I mean, we give allegiance to something in this world. When I was young, we were in grade school, every day we'd stand up and we'd face the flag and put our hands over our hearts and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. We're giving our allegiance to that flag. Is it because that flag was so special? Yes and no. But really what we were saying is we give ourselves in allegiance. We, we care about, we love this country. We might even give our lives for this country. Because we are pledging allegiance. And the kingdom of God calls us to at least that. The kingdom of God is, say, is calling us to pledge allegiance, to give our allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is the king. And governments will disappoint us, but never Jesus. Governments will fail us, but never Jesus. Governments can't always be counted on, but Jesus always can. And to give allegiance to Jesus is giving allegiance to our creator, And the one who loves us with an everlasting love. And that's the call of the gospel. The question in our minds is what what does that look like? What exactly does that mean? What does it mean to give allegiance to Jesus? What, What are we talking about here? That's the question that's been going through my mind. So I suspect it might be going through some of your minds. If you're thinking seriously about this. And I suspect that what we, in our journey through this life of, of, a, of if we're a Christian, to give allegiance to Jesus, the point that we need to be thinking are those very things that keep us from giving allegiance to Jesus. There are those places in our lives where we struggle to give allegiance to Jesus. There are those nudges, those callings, those perspectives that we, we hesitate. I suspect that one of those places for us is all of the things that we have. All the things that we have a tendency to say, this is mine. Our money, or lack of it, our possessions, our family, our relationships, our talents, our gifts, our time, our energy. All of those things that we, we tend to say, that is mine. We cling to those things. And the gospel is calling us to let go of those things. We all know that the journey and the struggle, because we all wrestle with it in one way or another. It's a part of our human nature. It's a part of our journey. We wrestle with things that we want to say, that's mine. But to give allegiance to Jesus is to say, it may look like it's mine, but it's really yours. When we think about these things that are ours, we, we remember that, that the scriptures talk a lot about what we do with what we have. It tends to talk about things in terms of of possessions and money, but it's really relating to all of these things that we want to hold on to. When we have this conversation, 
often, especially we talk about money, often people will say, so what's, what's the rule for this? And if you were here last week, you know, we talked some about rules. What's the guideline? What's the rule? The Old Testament says it's 10%. The Old Testament says, to, God says to the people of Israel, when you bring in your harvest, the first crop, the first is mine. 10% of everything you produce, 10% of everything that you gain, 10% of everything you earn, that's mine. When we come to the New Testament, we don't hear a lot about that kind of mindset, the tithe. And it's led people to say, the tithe doesn't matter anymore. I don't have to live under the law of the Old Testament. I don't have to live under the rules of the Old Testament. And quite frankly, we're right. The New Testament, people will say, the Old Testament's that law, the New Testament's that grace. I could not agree more. I was reading something this week that struck me. person said, in the context of that, when have you ever noticed that grace asks less of us? What we find in the New Testament is not talk about 10%. What we find in the New Testament is conversation about generosity. What we find in the New Testament is saying, look, 10%, that's sort of the baseline, that's the rule, but we don't live under the rules, we live in freedom. And now we have the freedom to not limit ourselves to a certain amount. We have the freedom to let God take whatever he wants. Because the truth is, when you get to the New Testament, it doesn't talk about 10%, it talks about 100%. It talks about everything we have being God's. Everything that we possess, everything that we say, that's mine. If you're a Christian, we say, actually, it's God's. And the call of the gospel and what it means to live in allegiance to Jesus is to not cling to what we have, but to live with open hands. That's a hard thing to struggle for us. And God's going to ask each one of us different things things about what we have because God treats us as individuals. That's why the rules are such a complicated thing because we tend to think, I want a rule and I'll, give, I'll go right to the edge of the rule. And God says, no, 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 let's take down the fence. It's all of it. But he understands each one of our hearts. He knows the place where we struggle. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's possessions. For some people, it's relationships. For some people, it's talents or gifts or time or energy. All of us are different, and God understands that. But to live in allegiance to Jesus is is to want to live with open hands. Even when we struggle to keep closing our hands, our heart's desire, our passion, our yearning is to open them. I think, I think in, in, in that same context, somewhat related, is that we struggle with self-interest. You know, we're always thinking, how do I protect myself? How, how do I get myself into the middle of this so that I can be the center of attention? How can I, how can I do this in such a way that, that I get what I want? And sometimes we manipulate relationships to do that. Sometimes we use our possessions to do that. Sometimes we use our words to do that, our actions to do that. To live in allegiance to Jesus is to say it's not about self-interest. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about giving. By giving myself away. There's nobody in Scripture, I shouldn't even, let me rephrase that. There is nobody who has ever set foot on this earth more generous than Jesus. And there's nobody who has set foot on this earth more self-giving, self-sacrificing than Jesus. All we have to do is look at the cross. But the cross isn't punishment to Jesus. The cross isn't something that that is a demand of Jesus. The cross is the most loving event in the history of the world. This is something Jesus does because he loves the world, because he loves you and me and every person. And he sacrifices himself, not because the father is holding his arm behind his back and forcing him, but because that's his heart to love. 
And when you know that the person you're giving allegiance to is this kind of person, you can do it. Because see, our fear is that what we give away, we're never going to get back. Our fear is that we're giving away such precious things to us. And and the return on that is never going to match up to what we're giving away. And the call of the cross and the gospel is to tell us anything we give is minuscule in comparison to what God gives us in his grace. It may not be in the same form. It may not be in material form. It may not be in resources, but it will be in the presence of God and at the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Ultimately, life as we were created to experience it. And giving allegiance to Jesus is not not giving away things that are precious to us. It is simply giving, opening our lives to God who loves us with an everlasting love. When you think about the cross, you think about the sacrifice that Jesus makes, and you think about the result of that. Resurrection, life, all the promises of God coming true. Jesus is not calling us to anything that he hasn't already done. That's why he can ask for our allegiance. Later in Revelation chapter 5, John says that there were, there were beings there in this vision who were trying to open up the seal that needed to be opened and no one can do it. And John said he began to weep and the people began to weep. And the angel who's giving them this tour of, of heaven says to him, don't weep. Because there is one who can open the seal, the Lion of Judah. And John starts getting excited about seeing the Lion of Judah, this roaring lion. And when he turns to look, what he sees is not a roaring lion, but a lamb who was slain. And the great powerful Jesus, the King, is a lamb who was slain for us. This is the one to whom we are giving allegiance. This is the one to whom we are offering ourselves and opening our hands and taking our hands off of our lives of self-interest. It may sound to you like giving allegiance to Jesus is the opposite of freedom. It may sound like, well, this, is, this sounds to me like just a tighter rule. But it's not. It's not the opposite of freedom. It's the very expression of freedom. The fullest expression of freedom. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he's trying to explain to, to the Pharisees and the people there who he is. And he finally comes to verse 32 and he says, Here's it, here it is. You will know the truth. That's him. And the truth will set you free. Because it is not freedom to live our lives grasping and holding and clutching and protecting and worrying about all the things that we want to hang on to. That's not freedom. That's bondage. It's not freedom to live our lives totally absorbed with self-interest, trying to protect ourselves, trying to make ourselves look good, trying to, to convince people how wonderful we are. That's not freedom. That's bondage. And we all know that because we have all done that. It's exhausting to live that way. Freedom is being able to live in such a way that we can let go of what we have. And we can celebrate giving it away to people. Living in freedom is is being willing to live sacrificially and, and not worrying about whether people realize how wonderful we are or not. We're free from that bondage. We're free to live our lives as servants, free to live our lives as givers, free to live our lives in sacrifice and surrender. 
But understand, giving allegiance to Jesus always means, always has, always is, is, is visualized in how we treat other people. In 1 John, he says, if you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor, I really have to question whether you love God. We might paraphrase that by saying, if we say that we're living our lives in allegiance to Jesus, that that's the desire and the passion of our hearts, but yet we treat other people horribly, then we really have to step back and say, am I really living in allegiance to Jesus? In John 13, Jesus meets with his disciples. It's the night he's arrested. He is sharing with them the the most important things of the gospel, the most important things about what it means to be his disciple. And in the midst of that, what does he do? He gets up from the table and he takes a towel and a basin and he gets down his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And then he says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And I don't think they do. Based on Peter's response, he's like, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And why does Peter say that? Because in his mind and in the minds of the disciples, they are appalled that Jesus would get down on his hands and knees and wash their stinking, dirty feet. Because rabbis don't do that kind of thing. That's for servants and slaves to do. And people who can... Who can uh, who can give, give sight to the blind and who can heal the sick. You don't do those kinds of servant tasks. People who can raise the dead don't do those kinds of servant tasks. People who can preach like Jesus and draw crowds like Jesus, you don't do those kinds of servant tasks. You have servants to do those tasks for you. That's what it means to have arrived. Right? I don't do those things. I have people to do those things. And Jesus says, no, you're misunderstanding the kingdom. Because he says to them, since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. And by treating each other in a spirit of servanthood, it's clear you're beginning to understand what it means to live in allegiance to me. And Jesus says, that's not bondage, that's freedom. I was listening uh, a few weeks ago to to, uh, one of the the most well-respected scholars and preachers and leaders of the evangelical church in the 20th century. He probably preached this sermon maybe 20 years ago or so, maybe a little more. And at that point, he was in his 80s. And he said, you know, some, there's some advantages to having being older. Uh, one of those is that you get a perspective on life that you don't get when you're young. And he said, you know, I've lived virtually all of my life in the 20th century. I've lived virtually all of my life in the what we call the, the evangelical church of the 20th century. And he said, sometimes there are, there's a phrase that can summarize a whole movement. And he said, if you were to ask me what phrase summarizes the movement of the evangelical church in the 20th century, he said, it would be this, receive Christ. So we preach that, we talk about that, we've spread that message far and wide, and it's an important thing to say. Because he said, I believe everyone should receive Christ. It's important. But he said, there is a subtle heresy in that phrase, if it's not in the right context. Because the truth of the matter is, when you read the Gospels, Jesus never says, receive me. Jesus looks at Andrew, James, and John, and others, and he says, follow me. And the difference is profound. Because when we tend to talk about receive Christ, we are tending to think of that as a conclusion. That's the apex. 
But when you read the Gospels and you think about Jesus saying, follow me, then receiving him is the introduction. Receiving him is the beginning of the journey. And follow me is really what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because follow me, in essence, means I live my life in allegiance to Jesus. And that is the core of the gospel. And that's the calling on everyone who wants to be a Christian. Everyone who wants what Jesus wants. Everyone who desires to be in relationship with Jesus. That's the call of the gospel. And so my question for us this morning is this. What is it that might be keeping us, blocking us, from living in allegiance to Jesus? Holy Father... We thank you for this glorious invitation, this glorious call to live in the freedom of allegiance to Jesus. Help us to see those places in our hearts, in our minds, or in our being that might block us, prevent us, so that we can be fully set free to be who you created us to be. We ask this through Jesus Christ, the eternal King. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No
Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.